All right, guys, so we're doing a little different today. We're actually going to have a roundtable with myself, Jacob Skepis from JPS Health and Fitness, and Steve Hall from Revive Stronger. The first half is going to be on this channel, and the second half I will have links below to Jacob's channel to finish off the interview. So I hope you guys enjoy. All right, so I'll start this off. Hey, everybody. We have uh, Steve Hall from Revive Stronger and Jacob from JPS Health. And so uh, just intro Obviously, we all kind of do similar things here. So we're all trainers. We all interview people who have been in the field for a long time. And we all got to talking, you know, following each other on Instagram and whatnot. Um, so we thought it would be cool to talk to each other and hear, you know, feedback from one another, what we do differently, um, how we got into it. So welcome, guys. Glad to be here. Likewise. And, thanks for having us on, Dad. And uh, so something we had both or we had all talked about was, you know, making a career out of coaching. And this is something that, you know, I've coached people kind of offline for a while, but doing it online and making the channel and everything, something that I found uh, really interesting was, you know, people see it and they think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, make a channel or I'll just coach people. And it's so simple. Um, but there's obviously a lot more to it. And I think one of the things that I really respect you guys and 3DMJ, really anybody who's doing this full time is that there's so much competition and there's no real regulation on that, you know, so obviously, you know, my, my full-time career is a dentist and I, I do mostly surgeries now, but, um, you know, for somebody to kind of compete with me in that realm, you have to at least do the four years of college, the four years of dental school, maybe a residency. And then I really am only competing with people within a few miles of me. But for this, for you guys, it's anybody who works out and anybody really in the world because of the internet. Um, so how have you guys found that competition? You go, yeah. Jake. All right. Um, yeah, I guess in Australia, fitness is a, a very popular uh, niche and industry and personal training. The barrier to entry is quite low in Australia. I know the US, it's a little bit different, probably slightly more difficult. But in Australia, you can literally do an online course that takes no longer than three to six months and you're, you're fully qualified depending on uh, whether you do a full-time or part-time. But yeah, as, as you mentioned, obtaining your qualifications is not hard and many coaches obviously uh, obtain their qualifications merely because they have an interest in fitness or they work out, not necessarily because they want to be a coach or they're unsure. And in my role at JPS, for listeners who aren't familiar with what I do, uh, I do a lot of education for coaches, so I run mentorships uh, specifically for coaches and I oversee our coaches and we've got 15 staff uh, at the moment who are working with uh, people in our facilities. So it's something that I I've seen and observed in the industry is that a lot of people come through and they usually start personal training because they're unsure of what they want to do. They like fitness, they like working out. It's often a an in-between job between studies or something they want to be doing later down the track that they're not 100% sure about doing. Uh, and for that reason, they're just really unequipped to, to cope and deal with uh, all of the challenges that coaches do face. And like you mentioned, it's a highly competitive industry and it's very fast pace it moves really quickly and it's I've been fortunate that I've been in it for so long that I you know know how to keep up and sort of stay on top of things but for coaches who are just coming in you know with social media now and obviously 
uh, other fitness professionals producing content and getting exposure uh, through Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all those sorts of things. It's more than just coaching. To not only establish yourself as a coach, you need to have, in my opinion, three things that contribute to your value ceiling. So you need to have value that you're offering your clients, which is experience uh, and results, whether it's with your clients or yourself, knowledge, um, and then obviously some form of expertise. Uh, you need to be able to expose yourself um, and show off something that is different and unique. And it's quite hard to be unique and different uh, when you've got so many people, you know, spitting out the same or very similar content. Um, and, and it can be tough. But I think what most coaches do wrong is they expect to be somewhere very quickly. They want to be at the top really quickly. They're not willing to put in the hard yards um, and do the work. So I think if there's a coach coming into the industry and dealing with a competition, you need to be good at what you do. And I think you both will agree that to to make it in the you need to be good. And to be good, it requires you to gain experience. And that's not necessarily, you know, working with high volume of people or just time or and tenure. It's actually refining your craft and developing skills and competencies competencies in coaching. And I think you just need to you have pay attention and be willing to, to do free work. I remember when I first started coaching, I would have coached my first five or 10 clients for free just because I wanted to get results and then show those results. I used to hang around at the local gym for hours on end, uh, you know, just cleaning treadmills, the saunas, going around to members, talking to people, you know, ask them about their goals and things like that. And I don't see a lot of people willing to do that. Um, I think it's a generational thing. I think our generation and the people who are coming through now, very much about instant gratification. They want, they got the qualifications, they want a full client list straight away, but they don't respect uh, the fact that to get there, you've got to be willing to not only put in a significant amount of work into developing yourself and your education and what you know as a coach and what you can apply uh, to the people that you work with, uh, but also just respecting the fact that it takes time and it takes a lot of effort like you don't get to the position that that steve's in as an online coach or you know our coaches at jps are in or 3dmj just by doing your qualifications um you have to be at the top of your game and it's a long road and you've got to do what's right not what's easy over many many years um and then i think when you do that there is no competition because you, you just simply outlast everyone. The average tenure of a personal trainer is like six months. Mm-hmm. So if you do, if, if you can stick around long enough, people just know that you're, you're, you're good and you're, you're reputable. Um, they can trust you. Uh, you've worked with, you know, a certain number of people and word of mouth gets out there. Um, and the competition really dies down because all of a sudden, you know, they look at JPS and it's like JPS has been around since 2010. Well, that's like eight years. It's like, well, there's not a lot of personal trainers in Melbourne that have been around that long. So the competition, it's like, I don't really worry about competition as much now because, um, you know, I guess we've sort of just stood the test of time. And I think that's probably the hardest thing, you know, as a coach. What do you think, Steve? So I think Jacob made some amazing points. And I really like the kind of values that you talked about that you need to have if you want to succeed in the industry um, and that he obviously has over at JPS and, me and Pascal have been honored enough to be on his kind of education course and doing a, a part for online kind of coaching. And we talk about within there the 
kind of oversaturation that the market has. And in fact, whilst that seems to many to be a barrier to entry, it actually makes it a lot easier for us because we stand out from the shit, basically, mm -hmm. because yeah. there's just so many shit coaches. <laughs> and as soon as people get coached by them, like you can only sell shit once. Pascal always reminds me of that. And he always uh, stands by and he reminds me that we need to stand by what we are doing and the things we do promote and not go down rabbit holes that might seem prosperous for a short period of time and just continue down the route that we're going. Not saying that I'm trying to go down detox diets or something, but there are some times when you're like, oh, are we sexy enough? Are we cool enough? It's like, no, like Jacob says, like provide results consistently over time, share those in a platform that you're good at and you'll prosper and you will shine out of the shit that just will land below. The people who don't consist in the kind of long term within the personal training industry. So yet yeah, in the UK, there are literally no requirements to be a personal trainer. I don't think unless like, you need to be reps certified. So you have to have had like a qualification. A lot of gyms require rep certification, but some gyms don't. And then for online, it's unregulated completely. I don't know how long mm -hmm. that's going to continue, but it's scary because mm. nutrition and training are like a large part of a lot of people's lives. Kind yeah. of like they can screw themselves up and we've seen it. We've all seen it. Yeah, and like we were talking about before we really recorded, I mean, how many people, because we've all been doing this at least 10 years, I think, pretty much, and how many people that we watched when we got into this are still doing it? I mean, it's very few. You know, there's only a couple names that when I got into this are still around. Most of them, you know, they had an ebook or, you know, they were on the forums and now, you know, they're kind of gone. Um, and, and Steve, you mentioned being flashy enough. And that's one of the other things we were going to talk about is just creating the fitness content because you have to stand out. Um, but unfortunately, I think what really grabs people's eyes is some of the, the flashy nonsense and the people with the biggest following, not always, you know, you look at somebody maybe like Omar Esau and he's got pretty good content and great people on there. Um, but a lot of these people, I mean, I've seen people with hundreds of thousands of followers and, you know, without calling anybody out, I mean, the content is just ridiculous. So, um, you know, how do you keep up with that when you have to compete with, you know, just a girl who's showing her butt and has 200,000 followers and that's about all she's got going. <laughs> What I do is I just show off my glutes. Everyone there seems to be impressed by my glutes. I don't even do any <laughs> hip thrusts. <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in all seriousness, I think, again, like I said before, sh you can only sell shit once. I think a lot of those people who we've talked about who are no longer in the industry is because they have a hot bod and then that's all they have to them. There's nothing deeper there. Um, something I think has made the difference for Revive Stronger in terms of our growth and the, the ability for me to grow is, I still have some of the some clients who were like back in the when I first started, like the loyalty, the kind of buy in of clients that they're the basis of you to be able to grow. They're the foundation. So if you can keep clients and you'll only keep them if you get them results because they mm -hmm. won't stay around. No one does. Mm -hmm. So these are the baseline. So if there's any kind of people listening to this and they're trying to get into online coaching like Jacob did, he kind of helped people for free. Like you can offer these people like for free or for very little, provide them tons of value. They never leave you because they've got someone who's awesome at what they do for very little money. And then you'll grow. They're your foundation to then grow from. And this has been un unvaluable for me. So I never really concern myself too much about, yeah, staying relevant and flashy. I just try and I, it's difficult because you try and educate the consumer that the flashy and the edgy things are not required and they're not needed. And the only way you can really confirm that in their mind is by providing good, solid evidence for it. So whether that's client results, it's your own results, and then really well-explained information. So we all do that via the podcast. We get experts on to explain this stuff 
very, very well. We only get credible people on who we trust and that their knowledge needs to be shared. And then we might do like infographics. Me and Jacob do those a lot. And we mm-hmm. condense information in a way that's digestible for people. And then they're like, ah, that makes sense. Uh, and I think eventually everyone realizes like these fad diets, these things, they just don't, they don't work. Um, and the audience that we serve are those, we don't want the people that think fad diets work. We want the people that know and trust what we do and then they'll be consistent with it and they get results and then it just grows. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I agree. I agree with Steve. It, it's hard because you want to get noticed and playing the long game is certainly difficult and frustrating, especially for new coaches. It's, I, I think it's a lot easier when you're in a position like Steve and I, where you have a very healthy client base to then sit back and say, Hey, we don't need to, worry about you know trying to sell anything sexy and flashy because we've already you know we're we're making money we're we're earning an income we don't have the financial pressure whereas i think a lot of people are drawn into to portraying uh their content in a manner that's you know trying to get that quick sell uh because they're desperate there's there is desperation there but i think when we look to why consumers are drawn to that type of content in the first place and not necessarily uh, the the principles and the science and the evidence-based content that we put out, uh, you you have to look to, you know, the values and beliefs and attitudes of an individual. These are the foundations of, you know, much of, you know, what makes up somebody's psychological makeup. So I think exposure for evidence-based content is extremely low in comparison to, you know, celebrity or commercial mainstream fitness content. And the reason for this is that uh, people value celebrities and, th- and they value these people with, uh, you know, good bodies and they don't necessarily value striated glutes or somebody who's taken 10 years to develop their physique. They don't necessarily value uh, what goes on behind the scenes to achieve that. They value someone who looks a certain way, lives a certain lifestyle and they've done it in a relatively easy manner because, uh, to them, you know, their enduring beliefs about what's important in life transcend through all the situations that they're going to be experiencing. And, you know, putting in, you know, 10 hours a week to their fitness isn't something that they necessarily value. So I think uh, what we need to do as coaches or communicators of, you know, quality information is to try to teach people, uh, you know, the value of science uh, playing the long game and all these sorts of things because that will then influence their attitudes uh, and their behaviors and choices and that inherently changes who they're going to listen to. But I think for a lot of people, like Steve was saying, they need to experience the, the shit. They need to try a fad diet. You know, I'm sure both of you have gone through horrible programs, horrible diets where at the time that was something you valued because the person delivering that information with somebody you believed in or you valued them for whatever reason and that influenced your, your perceptions and the decisions that you made. But you you must go through those uh, experiences to then appreciate, uh, you know, right from wrong essentially because it's very easy to tell someone, hey, you don't need to value this, you should value this. But again, our experiences are going to in large dictate what we do and don't value. Um, you know, you mentioned the the people are kind of desperate sometimes. And I think it also depends on how you use that desperate nature. Because really, when I think of the people who currently are the most successful at this, 
they all kind of have at one point kind of been desperate or maybe lower. Uh, and they use that, you know, they could just kept driving. So you mentioned before, you know, you were like clean up at gyms, you train people for free. Steve, I know last time you and I talked, you know, I mean, it took a while to build up to where you are now, right? Um, you guys both know Juma Araki. And when we, he and I talked, I mean, he went through years of just, you know, not sure if he was going to make it. And he almost quit to start just like a more traditional job. Um, you know, it's pretty common. I find that a lot of these people, it took years and years. You don't typically see people who are really good at this just come out of nowhere. So I think it's okay to be maybe a little desperate and, you know, not at the top. It's just how you use that. Because if you're just trying to be flashy, um, you know, that, that's not typically going to work. Yeah, I yeah, think for sure. I was just going to say, just an analogy that always rings true to this sort of thing. It's kind of like when you get to stage and you're shredded, there's so much beneath the surface, the iceberg, you do not see. The, all the years, the grind that's gone in, and then people just see that you're successful and they're like, how do I get to that now? And it's like, well, no, there's a lot that goes on beforehand that you don't know about. And I remember Juma, um, the first time I saw his name was because he started doing his podcast and he had like all these amazing names coming out and it was like a big build up. And that was really cool. So I, not that I, I don't think I took inspiration from that particularly, but it's funny how we've all eventually gone where Doom has gone and we've all been successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, something Pascal and I talked about last time was, you know, he doesn't like when people come to you guys and just ask about the price because basically it seems like people are just trying to find the lowest price. And, you know, we don't have to mention specifics about money here, but I am curious, do you guys find a certain trend among people who do that because for me personally you know one of the reasons that i don't train people for free because i used to um is not because i feel like i need the extra money it's because i find that people who i did it for free it didn't value it um and consistently those who i would try to help out for free i'd, I'd check back in after how you know i'd write up a diet plan i'd write up a workout i check back in in a couple of weeks and it's like oh well i haven't really gotten started and even a, a relative of mine i at least made them pay something so that they felt that investment that they were putting in whatever amount, you know, so they felt accountable for it. Go ahead. Yeah, so, all right. So, um, yeah, I guess in terms of determining who's going to be an appropriate fit uh, for my coaching, uh, back in the day, like I said, when I was doing free work, that was many, many years ago. I've actually put all my prices. So I'm actually now separate to JPS. So if people want to work with me, I'm completely separate to the prices at JPS. Um, I have a waiting list now, which is pretty uh, cool. Um, and I have a very uh, detailed screening process. So basically, um, you know, they have to speak to my assistant. She then, uh, you know, asks them a bunch of questions if they sort of fit the bill and there's no red flags. So red flags being if they're looking for prices or if they're, you know, Uh, just wanting a quick fix or they just want a diet plan to, you know, just even the language that they use. And we we do screen for, you know, whether they've dieted before, if they've had, you know, body image and, uh, you know, problems with their relationship with food and things like that. So any red flags, um, you know, I I sort of keep an eye out for because it's really important now for me to work with people who I want to work with because, uh, I, I want to enjoy what I do, and I'm really fortunate to be in a position where I can pick and choose who I want to work with, but I wasn't always that way. And I think it's important to respect and appreciate that when you are coming up, uh, you're going to have to work with anyone and everyone and generalize initially uh, with your clientele. You can't have a specific niche. Uh, you can't be picky. You can't be choosy. If somebody says, 
hey, I want to train with you, you need to say, cool, let's do it, because that's how you gain experience, uh, that's how you pay the bills, and hopefully over time, if you do a good job, you can start to see what type of client you work well, well with, what specific niche you're passionate about, what you're good at, and hopefully over time, you, you develop um, your client base around those type of people, and you end up working with a lot more uh, folk who are you know, the demographic and the avatar that, that suit your skill set. But in terms of, you know, whether or not they value the coaching experience, I think initially anyone who reaches out values you to some degree. If they take the time to write you an email, give you a phone call or set up a Skype or come in for a consultation, to some degree they value uh, what you have to offer. I think a lot of the uh, problems that coach, coaches face is their inability to get buy-in uh, to what they need the client to do to get the results. Um, and I think many coaches just work well with a certain type of person. Uh, for example, I know coaches who just work really well with people who are you know, very analytical and numbers focused. Anyone who is a little bit more you know, uh, driven towards qualitative type approaches or mm. might need a little bit more tender love and care and emotional support, they just, it's like it fucking doesn't work, right? And it's like the person can't value what they don't buy into, right? So uh, I think making sure the client fits you, you know, not just in terms of, uh, you know, the type of goals that they have and uh, whether they're a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or general population, but just personality types as well. I think it's very difficult because we're working with humans. We're not working with computers. And it'd be great if we had a system to, you know, determine what type of personality someone is, uh, you know, specifically and who's going to be the right fit for us. But the reality is, uh, you know, to get someone to value you as a person and your coaching methodologies and your philosophies, I think a lot of it comes down to personality at the end of the day. And that's just luck of the straw sometimes. Like I'm sure Steve and you, Dave, have worked with people who, you know, initially they might value, they might be willing to pay you all the money in the world, but then they turn around, you just don't gel. And, you know, you just don't feel with them. And it doesn't matter how much they're willing to pay. They could offer you double, double what you're willing to charge, um, but if you don't fit, you don't fit. So I think, yes, the, the respect for your time and effort in terms of a monetary and a fiscal nature is important, but I also think valuing you as a person, your philosophies, your approach, what you do, and just relating to you on, on a human level as to how you go about things and the way that you communicate and you know, translates what you, you need the client to do, you know, being able to think like a coach uh, but speak the, the language of the client is extremely important. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I think that was really well said. And I completely agree with you, Dave, in that um, if you do coach people for free, and I know Jacob said he did that at the beginning, I generally advise people don't do that now uh, because I just find that they don't value it. And uh, again, trying to coach like friends and family can be quite difficult at times because, again, they, they view you as that rather than coach. Um, and that can be really difficult because then they don't see you as kind of an authoritative figure, someone they have to be accountable to. It's just like your mate, which can like you obviously are friends on a level with your clients. But there is always the degree of your kind of they look up to you. They look up to what you're saying. And so I think that's important for that accountability reason completely. And I have found and like Jacob said, over time, the quality of it's hard to say the quality of the person you're kind of coaching, but the person probably you're trying to reach towards and aim towards is always refining as you're going along. Um, it, even when I first initially brought Pascal on, which is over a year ago now, the type of person we were getting through 
some people just weren't appropriate for online coaching. Whereas now everyone who signs up is like, it's almost like if you're going to have a consultation, you're going to get coaching. There's almost no question about it. Whereas before it was always like every single consult was like, we need to actually get this. Like I need to sell. I need to mm. kind of get my point across. Whereas now it's very much they've been following us. They know the content. They know they want us as a coach. And that's the people we want to coach because they have the best buy and they're going to get the best results. They're not going to have so many questions about things that are maybe unreasonable. They're not going to question every single philosophy and method. And they're going to trust in what we're providing them. And if they don't trust you as a coach, you, you, you're lost. Like they're never going to adhere. Uh, so something we do at Revive Stronger is we charge for a consultation, which we've been doing for like the last few years, which was really helpful because people would just t- not turn up or they not actually want a coaching consultation. They just want to ask loads of questions. And it was just yeah. like, this is just not working. Uh. So we charge a small fee for consultations, which has been really helpful because that automatically, they value you, they value your time. Uh, which is fantastic. And then, yeah, we just disclosed on the website that we don't give out prices because we don't want to be shopped around. We aren't like a product that is just like Nike or Adidas. It's every single coach, like all of us are quite different in many ways. Um, and they will, we all have our own methods and ways of doing things and communication patterns that people will buy into. Uh, so I think that's important. Sure, sure. And you, know, you just mentioned how we all kind of have our unique ways of going about that. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I know, I mean, we're all evidence-based and we can talk later. One of the topics was going to be how we apply research, but um, we are all evidence-based. I, I'm sure we agree on 90% of things, um, but there's probably some differences. So uh, I know you, Steve, you follow a lot of what Mike Isratil does, um, and you tend to start with the NEV, go up to MRV and all that. Um, I actually haven't implemented that that much. I've done it in my own training a little bit. Um, I think because you said that you were following the 3DMJ stuff a lot, and I think that you kind of stalled out, right? And then once you switched to um, like Israel's methods, which I mean, they're not hugely different, but there are differences, you really started to um, improve again. So I guess, can you kind of detail that a little bit? So yeah, I think it, for me, it's important to clarify. I don't think, and I hope I never would say it that I'm like and it always frustrates me when I hear this being said but I follow Eric Helms's way or I follow Mike Isratel's way or whatever it might be because they will say first of all they don't have one way of doing things Um, Mike Isratel's program for himself will look very dissimilar to what I do for myself just like my program looks different compared to other clients so I think it's important just to say there's whilst they have some different methods of kind of way they progress which I think are actually merging a little bit as they are getting more and more mm-hmm. kind of communicating, having these roundtables, and they're finding moving towards that pie in the sky optimality approach, and they're finding what methods of each of theirs kind of are best. Um, so yeah, I th- just to reiterate sure. that, but yeah, I moved from like a, I would say it was, and I think the guys at 3DMJ would probably say they were more in that power building camp where they very much focused on the big power lifts and then had some additional hypertrophy work. And I think they've moved a little bit away from that somewhat as they've kind of maybe, I don't know, focused more on specificity and have seen the value of some other movements. And that I found to help me. And that's what Mike brought to me was the specificity and how important it was to focus on that rather than kind of getting strong and massive at the same time. And for me, it just, it never seemed to work um, particularly well when I was doing that. And I'm sure there's, and I know I could do it better now than I was in the past because I've learned more. Um, so yeah, I kind of moved towards that, but yeah, Mike just brought into me 
And he really laid out a lot of the principles that I kind of had in my head, but didn't really know that well. Like I'd read textbooks. I'm sure you guys were the same where kind of you read it and you're like, this makes sense, but it just doesn't. I need what is this? And then Mike brought out the uh, scientific. What's it called? Scientific principles of strength training with um, James Hoffman and Chad Wesley Smith. Mm. And it was just like, wow, like you've just put into words what I've trying to be thinking about and that was a complete game changer for me and having this and then relaying it to clients in such a kind of way was really really helpful so I don't know if I answered your question but yeah that I just kind of that's how my transition has gone and yeah I do find uh, the volume landmarks concepts I think mm-hmm. are fantastic and I don't I really struggle when people argue against them as if they don't exist it's like it's not even a it's like a thing that can't not exist it's like saying calories don't exist that there right. is an amount of volume that you can't like can do and recover from there's an amount more than that there's a and then there is amount that's the least you need to grow and things like this so i i find i, I really struggle when people are kind of say it's a stupid thing because it yeah. just it does exist just might put some words to it and i just have found that to be helpful for me when i'm thinking about volume because in the past i was just like oh i'll do what three to four sets on this many muscle groups and i'd try and kind of have it evenly placed between pushing and pulling movements and things like this. Whereas actually now I'm thinking about what's the appropriate volume for that muscle group? What's going to get the best results for that muscle group, for that individual, how they're responding to their training, are they recovering well? It just made me focus on many other aspects that impact volume. And so I found the volume landmarks be kind of really, really helpful for me as a tra- uh, trainee and a coach, actually. Gotcha. I'll come back to uh, your points about people arguing with it, but Jacob, you want to touch on yours? Do you kind of follow that as well? or? <coughs> Yeah, I obviously have uh, read, uh, you know, how much training can do and recover from the volume landmarks and, and many of the uh, philosophies and principles of Mike Isratel. Am I cutting out again? <laughs> Just briefly. So, so I follow uh, much of uh, the principles of Mike Isratel and I think they are brilliant concepts and the, the primary difference... Uh, in terms of how I program for myself, my athletes, uh, and clients, is I'm probably not as aggressive with the increases in volume from microcycle to microcycle uh, as what I've seen only from uh, obviously social media and things like that uh, as what Steve would be. Uh, I do know that you're quite aggressive. I remember you put up just recently, Steve, you started with like six sets in one session. Uh, for your back, and then it ended up at like 12 in, in the final week of yeah. your, your mesocycle. I'm probably a little bit more conservative uh, in terms of adding volume um, and focusing a lot on uh, progression in, in reps and load, just using double progressions. Um, again, I work with a lot of individuals who have, uh, you know, they're dual athletes or they have, uh, you know, multiple goals. They want to get strong on the big lifts. Uh, they also want to get big. So, uh, balancing that uh, requires a little bit of a different approach uh, to how you would go about programming someone who just purely wants to build muscle. Uh, that's when I would definitely start to employ, uh, you know, s- some more of the, uh, I guess, you know, Mike Isratel methodologies, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, but with those kind of individuals, you know, we're, we're looking at obviously skill acquisition, more specifically on on certain lifts um, and at various joint angles, and we're looking at. Uh, progressing, you know, absolute load on the bar for, for certain lifts whilst, uh, you know, building size simultaneously, which is a little bit tricky in that sense. But, um, you know, th- I dare say we don't have too many differences in our approach to, to programming. Um, but 
I guess something that I do a little bit differently, uh, being a face-to-face coach, um, you know, I know Steve works online, um, you know, I have a huge appreciation for, like, like all coaches do, and I know Steve, uh, you know, bangs on about timeless form over and over again, so I'm not saying that he doesn't appreciate this, but I, I guess it's a little bit different when you see someone in the flesh complete an entire session, uh, you know, I just have a huge respect for, for human movements um, and how mobility, stability, uh, strength, control, and coordination impact what we do in the gym. So uh, when I work with someone new for the first time, my approach is not so much uh, prioritizing the programming, so to speak. I'm very much uh, trying to dial in their movement so that I can get them to be you know, a very competent uh, lifter and mover in the gym so that their longevity, uh, you know, with a barbell and in their sport, whatever that is, uh, is there. It's not going to be something that uh, they do, they get hurt, and it's just we're completely trying to, you know, put a Band-Aid on things. I want to get people moving well, uh, understanding movements, uh, you know, the basics, and then also, you know, the, the details that, uh, you know, powerlifting has taught me, such as, you know, learning to, you know, uh, put joints in certain positions because that's what will influence you know, how muscles move. Uh, the importance of, you know, having mobility as we go through, you know, certain movements and stability um, and, you know, all the different uh, components of creating, uh, you know, stability through movement and whatnot. So, yeah, I guess my approach initially with clients is heavily predicated around uh, the skill acquisition side of things. Something that I do a little bit differently um, with a lot of my clients, which again, I work with people face to face. So I get to know their lifestyles really, really well. Uh, and many of my clients, uh, and athletes, you know, it's a, it's a hobby and they don't have hours and hours, you know, per session to dedicate to their training. Like, uh, you know, I know Steve does and probably what I do, you know, owning a gym and being in a gym all the time, I can train at will, so to speak, even though I don't, because I always do other things. Um, is I incorporate Myo reps, um, which I've found to be a really fantastic tool for people who are time poor. Um, obviously, you know, err on the side of caution, but uh, it, it's something that I found really effective to be able to accumulate more volume in shorter periods of time. Uh, similarly, I like cluster sets, and Brian Miner actually introduced me to a. It's a bit of a variation of Myo reps. So instead of taking you know 15 second rest and performing your next uh, Myo rep set and so on and so on, you take 45 to 60 seconds uh, after your activation set, so a little bit longer, and you can get uh, you know, a few more reps, so you, you're getting uh, even more volume under fatigue conditions. Uh, so I, I use that as well, um, and also a lot of antagonist supersets. Um, you know, I found, find those really effective for a lot of my clients. And again, this is probably the, isn't a point that we differ on. Um, I'm sure you'll all agree to these things, but I guess it's just something that uh, not many people will be familiar with my programming. If I have clients who, you know, I know they're, they're going to be dedicating, you know, 20, 30 minutes to squatting and then, you know, say 15, 20 minutes to doing their RDLs and then they might have, you know, a, a single leg, you know, quad dominant movement and I want to get some additional leg extensions and hamstring curls in. Well, that's like a 90-minute workout. <clears throat> I'll superset their leg extensions, their hamstring curls. Similarly, if somebody's doing, you know, a cable fly or a pec fly, um, and their, you know, their time ports at the end of the workout, I'll get them to superset that with something like a row or, or a seated row or a face pull or something like that, just so that, again, we can get the volume in a shorter period of time. So they're probably the, 
I guess, the programming uh, and I guess the differences in terms of how I approach things. And, and the final thing I would say is I know Steve fo- follows the uh, the model of, um, you know, MEV to MRV, deload and continue. Uh, with a lot of my clients, I'm very reactive with deload. Uh, I'll only deload when they need it because I've found the typical work-to-rest paradigm uh, of, you know, four-to-one or five-to-one a lot of people can eke out progress for a lot longer, especially if they're not ramping up volume as aggressively as what uh, Steve and, you know, the microzatile approach uh, are doing, you know, when it's a little bit more conservative um, and there's, you know, just some more load progression and rep progression as opposed to set uh, progression from week to week. Um, you know, you can you can eke out uh, progress a little bit longer on a program. Uh, so I'm more inclined to, to see how far they can go before uh, performance starts to taper down, recovery starts to slow down. Uh, and fatigue is obviously higher than their their fitness, which can be problematic for many reasons. But uh, that's probably, I guess, the only differences. Uh, yeah, feel free to comment and yeah. take it from there. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the antagonistic supersets. Tony, I don't even really think about it anymore. But pretty much all of my workouts, if there are two muscles that you know aren't conflicting, I'll just go back and forth, just because I don't really like to sit around for you know four or five minutes at a time. Um, so even if it's like not necessarily antagonistic, but like back. And then between that, I'll do some sets of calves um, yeah. or obviously like chest and back, things like that. Um, you know, you, you talked about the myo reps and the studies on that and, and like the cluster uh, cluster reps and all that are interesting because it, you know, we learned so much about volume is the primary driver, but a lot of the studies, like there was that one recently, I don't know if you guys saw on drop sets and the drop mm. set group, you know, had pretty much the same hypertrophy as like the straight sets. But if you're doing a drop set, you know, you're not going to get, you know, three drop sets compared to three straight sets. You're not going to get the same net volume because you're either going to have to drop the weight a ton or lose reps. Um, so there, there's something else going on there, right, that allows you to still get similar results. And, and Steve, that was what I was going to mention with the uh, MEV and MRV is, you know, I, I agree with you. You can't really argue that they exist or that they don't exist, right, because obviously there is some level of volume where you start getting results, right? So like by definition, that's the minimum effective volume. And obviously there's some volume that you can no longer recover from. So the maximum recoverable volume. So Mike just did a good job of actually putting names to those, right? So they, they of course exist. I think I, it's a little hard to experiment with myself and, and you guys probably as well. I mean, Steve, you, I have noticed you've been making a lot of progress recently, but I think when you're in this 10 plus years, it's hard. The effect size is so small, you know, you, you might make good progress, but for you, good progress is like a pound in a year. So it's kind of, you almost have to experiment with your clients a little bit to see, is there really a difference noticed? Um, you know, for me, there's really not too much I do at this point that I, I see measurable progress because I've been lifting for 15 years. Um, but in, in, with my clients, I do notice some differences, you know, by scaling up the volume. Um, but I also noticed that, and I, I'm sure you'd all agree with this, there is a wide range that works. And unless you have really controlled, you know, a really controlled environment, it's hard to say, did I make more progress by going from eight to 12 sets or would it have been fine if I was at 10 for that mesocycle, you know? Um, And so for me personally, I I love the ideas. I just don't know if I've seen a huge difference going from low to really high volumes versus just keeping a sensible volume you know, and focusing on the sleep, the nutrition, the progressive overload, um, to me, it, it ends up being a smaller factor. 
All right, guys. So like I said, that was the first half. If you want to see the rest of the podcast, go ahead and click the link down below for Jacob's channel. He's got a great channel. A lot of the same guests I've had on here, a lot of the same concepts. So if you like this channel, I'm sure you're going to like his. So check it out.